What this does to the subjugated, the most private, the most serious thing this does to the subjugated, is to destroy his sense of reality. It destroys, for example, his, uh, his father's authority over him. His father can no longer tell him anything because the past has disappeared. <coughs> and his father has no power in the world. This means, in the case of an American Negro, born in that glittering republic, and in the moment you are born, since you don't know any better, every stick and stone and every face is white, and since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover that the flag to which you have pledged allegiance <laughs> along with everybody else has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. <laughs> It comes as a great shock to discover that the country, which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity, has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. <coughs> the disaffection, the demoralization, and the gap between one person and another, only on the basis of the color of their skins, begins there and accelerates accelerates throughout a whole lifetime so that presently you realize you're 30 and are having a terrible time managing to trust your countrymen. By the time you are 30, you have been through a certain kind of mill and the most serious effect of the mill you've been through is again not the catalog of disaster, the policemen, the taxi drivers, the waiters, the landlady, the landlord, the banks, the insurance companies, the millions of details, 24 hours of every day, which spell out to you that you are a worthless human being. It is not that. It is by that time you've begun to see it happening in your daughter or your son or your niece or your nephew. You are 30 by now and nothing you have done has helped you to escape the trap. But what is worse than that is that nothing you have done, and as far as you can tell, nothing you can do, will save your son or your daughter from meeting the same disaster and not impossibly coming to the same end. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. You lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. And we as a people will get to the promised land. Speakola with Tony Wilson. Welcome to another episode of Speakola, and what a way to start the episode. Three of the most famous minutes of speech making in the 20th century. James Baldwin at the Cambridge Union in 1965. A debate 
that the American dream has come at the expense of the American Negro. The debate was between Baldwin, the novelist, playwright, essayist, poet, activist, who was taking on the conservative champion William F. Buckley, who was the editor of the National Review, an advisor to the conservative candidate Barry Goldsworthy in 1964, and also a hero to the young and up-and-coming Ronald Reagan. It's difficult to overstate the power of Baldwin's speech. It's 24 minutes long, some of the best 24 minutes of speaking in the 20th century, but it's not going to be the focus of this episode. I hope it will get its own episode at some stage, but rather, today we feature a debate that had to be inspired somewhat by the Cambridge Union debate of 1965. In October of 2015, the Ethics Centre in Sydney scheduled a debate as part of their IQ2 series on the topic that racism is destroying the Australian dream. There were four speakers. On the negative side, the conservative columnist Rita Panahi, as well as Jack Thompson. And on the affirmative side, the immigration lawyer Pallavi Sinha, as well as our special guest today, Stan Grant, a Wiradjuri man hailing from the country around Griffith, west of the Blue Mountains. He achieved fame in the early 90s as the host of a tabloid current affairs show called Real Life. But he achieved credibility in the decades that followed as a correspondent for some of the world's leading news organisations, including CNN, Al Jazeera, and here in Australia on SBS and ABC. He saw many of the hotspots of the world, and he was awarded Walkley Awards, which is the Australian equivalent of the American Pulitzer. He won Peabody Awards. He won Asia TV Awards. There are a few more celebrated journalists in Australia and few more eloquent voices, as you're about to hear. But for all he achieved in that career, it was all dwarfed by what occurred in eight minutes on the 27th of October 2015. On that night, Stan Grant lit up a stage. He told a story of the history of Australia, a history of the last 230 years, and a story that white Australia hasn't always wanted to hear. But the way Stan told it, it was impossible not to listen The speech went around the world. It was played on CNN and the BBC and Al Jazeera and it went viral, millions of hits on Facebook. And I'm pleased and honoured to say that Stan Grant is the first deliverer of what I would call a great and significant speech to appear himself on the Speakola podcast as our special guest. Stan was in Sydney when I spoke to him. I was in Melbourne and it's a wonderful hour. Here it is. Well, it is a special guest on the Speakola podcast this week. Stan Grant has won all sorts of awards. He's won three Walkleys. He's won two Peabody's. And he might not even know this, but he's won one gold Speakoli award. <coughs> At the end of 2016, we gave his Australian dream speech the speech of the year. Stan, I'm sure that gold JPEG meant a lot to you. Well, now that I've heard about it, it does. I, I had no idea. Um that's really an honour, actually. You know, I, I listened. Um, I listened to a lot of the speeches and a lot of the discussions that you've had. So to be chosen in that year was um, 
fantastic. So I'm, I'm, I'm really chuffed about it. Well, I've said this in the intro, but I actually regard the speech you gave on that incredible night at the IQ2 debate uh, that was run by the Ethics Centre. I thought it was it's really one of the significant Australian speeches of the 21st century, and I'm rapt to have you on today. Uh, tell us a bit about how this event happened. How did you get asked to be involved? What were your expectations? I was a very reluctant participant, to be honest with you. It sort of grew out of a, an article that I'd written about the Adam Goods affair. And, of course, you know, that was running hot at that the time, the, the booing of Adam Goods. And I think what that revealed to us as a society, what it told me about about the, the, the depths of, of racism still in our society, the, the historical legacy of the, the treatment of, of Indigenous people. And, and I'd written an article about that from a very personal point of view, and as a result of that, I was approached to um, to be part of a of an ethics society discussion, and the debate really focused on the question of whether racism was destroying the Australian dream. And uh, when they first approached me, I was I was reluctant to get involved. Apart from anything else, I was I was very busy, but I, I didn't really want to go down that path. You know, I mean, you you, you know you you venture into that terrain, it can become um, very tricky, you know, and, and often quite debilitating. So initially I'd, I'd said no, but the ethics centre persisted and ultimately wore me down. And, and what it was was a debate where um, they wanted me to be on the affirmative that, yes, racism is destroying the Australian dream and there were others on the negative. Uh, and, and, and the speech grew out of that. It was just um, my only had, you know, eight or nine minutes to speak as my opening to the debate and I just really wanted to make it a very personal and very direct look at our history and how that has impacted on me and my family and what it says to us as Indigenous people. So it was a bit of an accident and it was something that was unplanned and something that was entirely ad-libbed actually. Um, I hadn't prepared anything. I just wanted to get up and to speak very directly and, and from the heart and try to place racism in Australia in a bit of a historical perspective. Well, that's incredible to me that you, that it was completely ad libbed. I did know it was it was amazingly covered by the BBC. I presume there were, there were multi cameras, mm. and I think it really adds to the power of the presentation. Yeah, but I I saw from the rear views that there was not a, even a single iPad or note or hmm. card and, and that you were comp I wondered whether you had a script entirely in your head no, or, no. or whether you were on the fly. No, I, look, I, I had an idea about some of the things I wanted to speak about. I wanted to talk about how we see ourselves as Australians, the myths that we tell ourselves and how we embody those myths in our literature and, you know, our poetry and, 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 and our anthem. And this idea of an egalitarian, young, free nation that doesn't at all speak to the reality of Indigenous lives in Australia. So I, I had an idea about what I wanted to say, but it very much just came uh, to me at the time that I wanted to, um, to speak about my family, I wanted to speak about our history. And I have a lot of these ideas in my head and, and a lot of stories and, and a lifetime of reading and thinking and experiencing all of these issues. So it was very it was very natural to be able to deliver that. But I, I did have a, 
a rough sort of idea about things I wanted to touch on, but I wanted it to be spontaneous. And more importantly, I think I didn't want the audience to have an opportunity to look away. I wanted to hold them. I wanted to hold their eye. I wanted to speak directly to them. I didn't want to look down at notes. I didn't want to be trying to find my place in a prepared speech. I didn't want to lose the intimacy of that moment and the depth of that connection. I wanted to hold their eye, and I thought that the best way to do that was to be as direct and spontaneous as possible. Well, that's incredibly effective in the speech. And my wife and I were watching it last night again, and Tam said that's a speech he was going to give his whole life. Mm-hmm. It's not like he needed to write it because you've said it in your head yeah. a thousand times. Is there an element of truth to that? Gosh, she's very wise. Um, it's uh, Look, it's a constant noise in my head. It's a constant conversation. My entire life has, uh, from the earliest memory, Um, really, has been an attempt to try to to deal with where this world has placed me. You know, to be born into an Aboriginal family in New South Wales, to be born into a very particular history, and to know that so much of my life had been shaped directly by that history, meant that I had no choice in this. You know, I, I was born into a family and a tradition, and a history, and a time and place when I had to grapple with what it meant to be alive, to be a human being. Who was I? You know, who am I? What's my place in this world? Um, How do I free myself from this history? And from my earliest memories, particularly from having, after having started school, I am, I'm playing this out all the time. I can remember conversations I've had, thoughts that I've had, incidents in the schoolyard with teachers where I'm reminded that, that, I, that I don't have a place in this world and that it is I somehow have to prove myself or explain myself or find a place in the world that was not designed for me. And so, yes, I've, um, I've had that conversation over and over and over again. It was a speech, I think, that uh, didn't need to be written down and didn't need to be rehearsed because it was a lived experience. And and it probably was something that I was um, born to give in a sense that, you know, inevitably in a certain situation that was going to come out. I was going to say those things. And to try to do it as well where I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a way through you know, I'm trying to navigate this. It's not just about being anger, angry, although there is anger in the speech. It's it's about how do I how do I free myself from this? How do I break the chains of that history? How do I find a place in Australia like anyone else? How can this country speak as profoundly to me as it does to others? You know, when will we get a chance to sing that anthem? And feel as if that speaks to us too. So it was it was my way of trying to to break free of that history and to to find a place in the world that is not something that that I have inherited, but something that I can I can create, I can discover for myself. It's been a constant struggle of mine throughout my life. 
We have this ability, I, I can hear it even as you answer the questions now, to find rhythm in speeches and, and to use mm. the rule of threes and, and repetition. Mm. Um, I asked Andrew Denton last week if he'd been a debater and I, I think he had a, I mean, I've listened to your Conversations podcast with Richard Byler and Andrew Denton did a debate down at King's School in, in Sydney and I heard on Conversations that you changed school 13 or 14 times. Oh, yeah. Um, before before you said, I would love to have been a debater. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I presume this is. I would love to have gone to King's School. Um, yeah, look, I, I I never had any opportunities like that. In fact, the message that I received at school constantly was that I didn't have a place there, that I I would amount to nothing. And you know, they were they were the words that directly said to us as Aboriginal kids growing up. You know, we were told we would amount to nothing, that we were worthless, that we were useless. And that we had no future and we had no place in, in school. And that I, I had that message over and over again. My family was incredibly poor. You know, we were an itinerant black family, um, homeless, moving from town to town, looking to survive. My father finding work wherever he could get it. There was no certainty, security. There was no permanency to our lives. It was an incredibly tenuous existence. It was survival. That's what it was. It was just a, a struggle to survive, and I, and I think about that now. And I, you know, I think about that a lot. And the the missed opportunities or the lost opportunities um, that I may have had if I'd been born into other circumstances. You know, I would love to have been a debater or to have gone to a school that uh, had all of those opportunities, but that wasn't for me. But I I wouldn't be the person that I was if I hadn't had that upbringing either. It's forced me to ask questions that. Other people don't get to ask about their place in the world. Um, people who are much more certain and secure that the world is for them. Um, for me, you know, I never felt at home in the world. And so I had to find that place and that meant that I had to ask other questions and, and, and discover the world for myself. Where do you think you learnt the rhythm of speech and the rhythm of storytelling and just the, the ability just to do what you did on that stage? Um, it's innate, I think, uh, and it also comes from my family. You know, my family are great storytellers, incredible storytellers, and we come from we come from an amazing storytelling tradition. My great grandfather on my father's side was known as the storyteller amongst Wiradjuri people in Western New South Wales. And old people will tell me stories about him. You know, people who remember him from when they were children, and they said that he used to carry around with him an old stump of a carved tree, a ceremonial tree, and that his mother evidently had given to him when so many of these trees were being knocked down, the land was cleared, and she'd rescued one of these sacred trees and given it to him. But he, all he had left of it was a, a small stump that had markings and carvings in it. And he used to carry that around from place to place and he'd set up the tree, the stump of the tree, and he'd sit by it and he'd spin stories and old people tell me now about when they were children and they would sit there transfixed while he would tell them stories about our traditions and our history and our culture and funny stories sad stories you know whatever um spiritual stories and by all accounts he was just a remarkable storyteller my mother was a wonderful wonderful storyteller and you know my childhood memories are of sitting around with her and and she'd just spin these incredible tales of growing up and what life was like and her parents and her brothers and sisters. And she was such a vivid 
storyteller. It was such a visceral experience to sit there with her. It was like you were there, you know. It was like the world was was you were just being enveloped in this world. And so they they understood lyricism and and rhythm and and storytelling structure. It was just an innate thing, I think, in so many people in my family, as it is in many Indigenous families. So I. I imbibed that growing up and and then when I got into journalism, it felt like a very natural fit. I've never had to find the words. I've never been stumped. I've never had that writer's block. I've, I've always been able to find a way into a story and words matter. The length of a word matters and how to choose the right word matters and where a sentence ends and begins matters and where you place punctuation matters. The rhythm of language is as important as the words themselves because it allows people in that that musicality, it sings to people and it allows people to find a place for themselves in those words and in those stories. So no matter what I was doing, whether I was writing a story and as a journalist or writing a book or or delivering a speech like that, I think that a lot of those storytelling traditions um, and talents are something that I've inherited and I've imbibed as well from being around master storytellers most of my life. Well, you had to find the right words to begin this speech. And I, I imagine that it's a very natural start for any Indigenous man who is stepping onto another tribe or people's Indigenous country to start the same way. You're always going to start with an acknowledgement? Yeah, because... Um, you know, it's it's a it's a mark of respect and honouring those people, but it's more than that as well. It's it's telling Australians that Australia is a much older country. It's reminding people that this isn't about putting a flag in the ground and extinguishing the rights of people. Australia is not two centuries old. It isn't about laws and it isn't about parliaments and it isn't about anthems. It's about something much deeper than that. It's about a lived experience, a culture and a people who were born out of a place. And when you spend so long in a place, when you spend so many thousands of years in a place, you become part of that country. And in acknowledging the people themselves, I'm acknowledging that history. And I'm reminding Australians that their Australia is a modern creation and in a sense, for them to become Australians in any meaningful sense, then they have to find a way into our traditions too. It's only in doing that that they will actually find a way to truly belong. And I've noticed, Stan, that when you do an acknowledgement of country or an introduction to a speech, you'll often use a little bit of Wiradjuri language uh, just to quickly yeah. dip in there so that we have that awareness that this is a living language. Yeah, and it's also a respect to my people and particularly my father who spent so much of his life dedicated to preserving that language, keeping it alive. He was fortunate to grow up with his grandfather and his mother and father who were who you know who spoke that language. It's a first language for them. And he's kept that language alive and it's just another way of saying we are here, we are real, we speak, we have a sense of belonging. And again, that language comes from a place. It comes from this land. It is the language of this country. English is not the language of this country. There are hundreds of other languages that are born here. And, and you know, I think no matter where I've been in the world, 
when you speak some of the language, you you feel a sense of what it is to stand in that place, to acknowledge the people of that place, because language is place as much as it is people. And so it's very important for me to um, to be able to do that. And it's important for people to hear that as well, to understand that there is a different, again, the rhythm is different, that the, the lyricism is different, and it speaks to something about who we are. I think in our language, the poetry and the rhythm of our language tells us about who we are as people as well. You know, when I hear our language, I see the faces of our people because we are not just European people. We are different people with a different tradition. We are people of this land. So it's important to speak it and it's important for people to hear it. We do the welcome and then I guess you're finding the first line proper of the argumentative part of the debate and it's a beautiful line it makes me think that it would have been a a, a scripted speech but it's the line um, in the winter of 2015 Australia turned to face itself what what was the purpose of this opening obviously you knew where you were going but can you talk about pacing and and mood and, and what you were trying to do here yeah, well, again, you see, it's it's trying to locate people. It's trying to make a connection with people. It's trying to open space for people to be able to to see themselves, to be able to enter into that that dialogue that I'm trying to have with them. And in the winter of 2015, that we turned to face ourselves, it was that moment of reckoning, and it happened on a sporting field, a place that we think is so holy. And it happened to a man, you know, an Australian of the year, an Indigenous man that, that we drove from the game that he loved. You know, if Australia is an egalitarian place, if sport is the place where we can meet ourselves as equals, where all that can define you is your ability on that field at that time, if those things are true, then why did that happen to Adam? And I think it identifies a contradiction in our character. It exposes the hypocrisy and the lie of who we are. And to attach that to a time and a place, and there's no doubt, I mean, I suppose, you know, I read a lot um, and there is no doubt and I, I love the rhythm of language and there's no doubt that there's some Shakespeare there, that there is, you know, the winter of our yeah, discontent. the winter of our discontent. There there's no doubt, you know, um, not that I was thinking about that, but I've read so much over the years that that language has become part of me. There was bits of Shakespeare. There was bits of my mother's poetry. There was bits of my ancestors. There was, um, you know, all of that is there, I think, in, in that line. And it does create, I think, a mood for people. It absolutely does. And you've made a documentary called The Australian Dream, which won an actor award and is a an amazing film. Can you take us back to 2015 and how the Adam Good saga unfolded for you personally? Did, did you know about it as it was just starting or did it sort of catch up to you when it had momentum? Yeah, well, you think about this, it probably started even earlier than that, didn't it? It sort of reached a crescendo, but this had been going for several years by this time. Um, you know, the background to this was uh, Adam calling out racism and calling out the abuse that he'd received from a young girl in the crowd and then later 
you know, people started to boo him and attack him from there. Then he was named Australian of the Year and he gave a speech where he, um, he challenged Australia to do better on race and reconciliation and he was booed again. It also coincided with um, my return to Australia. I'd lived outside of Australia uh, on and off for over 20, 20 years, you know, going back to the 90s. I'd lived in the UK and, and in Hong Kong and in Beijing and throughout the Middle East. And I returned to Australia after having reported so many of the, the great conflicts of our age to land right at the heart of our conflict, of our unresolved history. And all of this personified in, in a man, Adam Goods. So I, I, I think I felt it through the, the lens of that experience of having grown up, moved away, come back, and then seeing that all of those things that I'd experienced growing up are still front and centre and they're still taking a terrible toll on the lives of people. And Adam very much represented that. And then it also, I also felt compelled, I think, to, be, to speak to that and to bring my voice to it. I mean, what was all that reporting for? If I was spending all of that time in China and Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iraq and you know, all the places that I'd been, then I needed to bring my voice to this and I needed to speak to this, to our moment, to our history, to our pain, to our unresolved tension in our own society. It was a catalyst for many things, I think, that what Adam went through. And, and for me personally, but also I think as a nation, it was a moment of introspection. It, also, it, it shook us and it forced us to look at ourselves again. And I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to bring my voice to that. You link from Adam's experience into the shared experience next. And you use the word how. Um, it's a really evocative and I think a painful word for the audience to hear because I think uh, you're <laughs> awakened to the kind of pain that Aboriginal people are experiencing. Is that a word, again, you, yeah. you found on the fly? Yeah, yeah, it was. But that's, again, I think something that reflected how we felt and what we heard. When people booed, it said something else to us and it sounded like something else. It wasn't just a boo, it was a, a howl. It was this howl of humiliation and and it did echo through two centuries of, of dispossession and segregation and violence and all of those things were contained in that moment. I wanted Australians to, to hear that boo again because so much of the argument about this was that, well, we get to boo footballers all the time. What's wrong with booing footballers? You know, they, we pay our money. Why can't we boo? We just don't like him. You know, there was a lot of that argument. But it wasn't what people were doing. It was what we were hearing. And, and I think the word howl just absolutely encapsulated how I felt. It spoke much more powerfully to me than just using the word boo. It was a howl. It, 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 it came from somewhere. It was, it was guttural. It, it, was, it was painful. What we heard was incredibly painful. And I wanted people to, to hear it again, but hear it through our ears. And how carried, I think, much more profoundly the feeling that we had when we heard that boo. It wasn't just a boo. You then, you actually link again 
very beautifully from the how to the debate topic, which is the Australian dream and the way that that dream is symbolised in song and poetry. And you said this was an idea that you had beforehand, that you could use the songs and poems that are central to a white idea of Australia uh, to say something else. Yeah, well, you know, Australians all let us rejoice for we are young and free. I mean, well, we're not. And what do we have to rejoice about 200 years of dispossession, frontier massacre, segregation, children taken away, stolen generations, incarceration. I mean, where is this? You know, it is absurd to think that we would rejoice. And I think, again, there's something in the language, isn't there? While Australians rejoice, we have to live with the reality of what they're rejoicing. They are taking joy in the dispossession and the brutality and the suffering of Indigenous people. For we are young and free. How on earth can we be free in a country that still jails us to the extent that it does? You know, when you're 3% of the population and around a third of the prison population, how is that free? And how are we young when our, our traditions here are thousands of years old? I wanted to use the, those words and I wanted again to, to allow people to hear those words again, to hear what they sound like to us. Australians all let us rejoice for we are young and free. None of those things speak to us. You know, you, you hear Dorothea McKellar, I love a sunburned country, a land of sweeping plains. And again, it's this ode to this landscape, this terra nullius, this idea that no one was here, it is theirs now. This sunburned country and land of sweeping plains and rugged mountain ranges. But where are the people? She never mentions us. It's always the land, the land that was taken, the land that was taken because it was empty, because we didn't exist. So here you have this this poem that is seen as embodying so much of the mythology of what it is to be Australian, and she never mentions us. That is a terra nullius poem. She absolutely removes us from the landscape, and she's celebrated for that. And I wanted to I wanted to remind them that when she's talking about those planes, we died on them. We were killed, we were slaughtered, we were poisoned on those planes. We live in a country where we don't see or hear or speak the same things. And that juxtaposition between the mythology of Australia, the anthems of Australia, the poetry of Australia, denies our existence. And I wanted that juxtaposition to reveal that that dissonance between what Australians celebrate, what they mythologise, and the reality of our own existence. You had a difficult job to do in areas like talking about a war of extermination. You just sort of say, look it up. It's in the Sydney Gazette. Look it up. And you don't get bogged down in the kind of to and fro that goes on with these topics. And it certainly adds to the pace and the power of the speech. And, And the same with the statistics. I noticed when you got to the stuff about 
child in incarceration, you just mentioned a, a really graspable fact that a, an Aboriginal child is more likely to be locked up in prison than they are to finish high school. And you're not running around with numbers and percentages. You just let people try to digest no. that. It was, it yeah, was it's, real economy. It's just the reality, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and again, I only had, you know, uh, I, I, think, I think time became a virtue in this sense. Of, you know, I had eight minutes, I think it was. And in eight minutes, I had to make people feel what we felt. I had to make them, I had to reveal to them the, the depth of racism in a country that is born out of a racist idea that we don't exist. And, and I needed to take the history of that and to remind people of how that history plays out in our lives still today. Um, so I think the the time constraints demanded a brevity that made it, again, probably even more direct. In any sort of speech like that, you will drive people out the door if you start throwing numbers and statistics at them. That's for another time. That's for a, you know, that that's for an article to write. But in a speech like that, you want to be able to hold people. And if they can imagine the lost lives, you know, the lives of Indigenous people who, young people, Indigenous kids who, who face a reality that they are more likely to go to jail than finish high school. I mean, that's just, uh, that's an image. I think, you know, everybody, everybody has children. Everybody was a child. Everybody sees children. But do they see our children? And are they going to be accountable for what continues to happen to our children? So I, I wanted it to be very human and very direct again. And I think probably the, the time constraints meant that there was an economy to it, which probably led to a greater impact. And Stan, the brevity is there in the next section as well when you talk about the legal basis for racism in Australia. And you've mentioned terra nullius already, but this section also includes the Constitution. And, and really from Captain Arthur Phillip to Dickens to the Founding Fathers to today, you race through a history of racism. Yeah, and again, it's 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 looking at history and trying to make that history real. You know, the language that was used by the founding fathers, the idea that we would not be counted, the idea that we would disappear, that they would smooth the dying pillow, that we were a people bound for extinction. Unbelievable. And yet we've survived that. And I wanted people to know that. I wanted people to know that in spite of all that, I was standing there on that stage that for all that had been done to us, we had survived. And, and again, you know, it was, it was taking history and making it personal and making that deep, deep connection. Smoothing the dying pillow, Stan, where's that phrase is, is so evocative? Where's that from? Yeah, I, it comes from Daisy Bates by memory, you know, and she had talked about this idea that they, you know, that the, the pillow of death needed to be smoothed, smooth the dying pillow for a dying race. There was a, even, you know, at the sort of turn of the 20th century, there was this idea that we were going to face extinction, that we would die out. And the best that could be done for us was to ease our suffering, was to make our passing as comfortable as possible. And that's where that idea came from. You know, the best we can do for these people is just to smooth the pillow out while they lay their heads down to die. It's such an evocative word and such an evocative idea. And it speaks to just this fatalism, this sense that 
that we were a people doomed for extinction and that with our passing, Australia would be free of us. Australia would be free to be what they would want to be. They would be rid of the stain of their history. And they may mourn our passing, but in our passing they'd be liberated from it too because they would be free to live in this country as they imagined it. And that is a country that was empty with no one here. And I think the the power of that is magnified by the examples you use. You use Arthur Phillip and bring back the severed heads of the troublemakers and you use Charles Dickens who was so much a voice of the working class in England but that his attitudes were it will be better that they be wiped off the earth. And I know Alfred Deacon, you know, someone who's revered, I guess, for, for what he offered to the early Commonwealth, he also said terrible things about... Indigenous populations. I mean, it, it really, I think that part, this is a difficult part as a white person to sit through. Yeah, you know, again, it's, it's the, you know, the founding fathers, it's the people we revere. You know, you, you will become mythologised, you will become lionised, you become an icon of Australia by denying or being complicit in the destruction of our people. Um, you know, I mean, no one ever suffers in Australia through the denial or the destruction of Aboriginal people. You know, historically, people were rewarded for this. How did people get their land? You know, people would move Aboriginal people off, drive Aboriginal people off and claim the land. Some of the great land-holding families of Australia can trace their inheritance back to what we lost. This is, this is, again, it's this idea of two Australias. It's this idea that someone can be revered, someone can be seen as one of the founding fathers of Australia, and yet this same person prophesied our inevitable extinction, saw a time when there would be nothing but white people in Australia. And, of course, remember that the very first act of the Australian Parliament after Federation in 1901 was what became colloquially known as the white Australia policy. You know, Australia was wedded to whiteness. The the idea of Australia is indistinguishable from the idea of whiteness and empire and colonisation. That is at the heart of the country. And yet, and I think our existence, our presence here, continues to stand in defiance of that. And that's the, that's the most interesting and uneasy part of being Australian, is that we live between those two worlds, the world of European enlightenment and discovery and colonisation and empire and whiteness, the suffering of our people but the ongoing survival of our people, and the knowledge that we have a deep connection here that other Australians cannot have until we reconcile those two Australias. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned the dispossession at Yapoon in 1963, um, the night of the burning, and it seems to do the job in the speech for me of connecting this history of racism and dispossession to your lifetime, to say this man standing here is part of this timeline. 
And then that links naturally to the next bit of the speech, which is your personal experiences and your family's personal experiences at the hands of white Australia. Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite strange here, you know, sort of working through the speech like this again. It's um, because it was a speech that was delivered off the cuff and, and, and ad-libbed and, and it was very spontaneous. To break it down is really interesting. I'm sort of re- thinking about what it's revealing to me at the time things that I hadn't even necessarily thought of. But there is definitely, when you do break the speech down in this way, you can see that there is definitely a, um, a narrative. Uh, there is a narrative arc. It begins with Adam Goods. It takes us back through our history. And then it brings me back to my birth. And I think that's why that was important in 1963. I mean, if people imagine that this is something that happened in the past... This is something that belongs to another time. Why don't you forget about this? Why don't you get over your history? I wanted to remind people that it was not the past, that there was someone standing on that stage that night who was born in the year when Aboriginal people were driven from their lands and their houses burned to the ground. And while it was happening in Yapoon, it was also happening in New South Wales and Victoria and Western Australia. It was happening everywhere. And I wanted them to understand that. And that, of course, opened up the next part of the speech, which is, okay, 1963, I'm born. The dispossession is continuing. The violence is continuing. How did that shape my life? And then to move through my life, uh, my parents' lives, my grandparents' lives, the experiences that I had, which again connects us again, I think, to Adam Goods. Because Adam is the end point of this. That's the moment we turn to look at ourselves after 200 years of this history. Absolutely. And I've just listened to your Conversations podcast with Richard Feidler and we meet your family in that podcast and we meet them for over half an hour and it's an extraordinary half hour. I really recommend it to everyone. But your father, Wiradjuri man, Saw Miller, lost the three t- tips of three fingers. He, he sounds like an incredible person. Can, can you give a brief description of him? You know, um, he is an incredible man. Uh, and when I was growing up, a very tough man. You know, he had to be tough. He had to survive. He was a tent boxer. He was a footballer. He was a sawmiller. He came from another era, you know, when you had to be physically tough to survive mentally tough to survive. I mean, this society was designed to break him down, to lock him up, to beat him down. And all of those things happened. He had experienced all of it. He had lived at the coalface of what it was to be a identifiably clearly black man in Australia with all of that and born into all of that history. And when I was growing up, he was a very, very hard man, a very tough man. He was preparing me for that world. You know, he couldn't imagine the life that I was going to lead, he was preparing me for that world. He taught me how to fight. He taught me how to look after myself. He taught me how to play football. He taught me how to be tough. There's one lesson he gave me over and over, is that this world is going to knock you down. It's going to knock you down, and when you're down, it's going to kick you when you're down. And you're going to have to find a way to get back up, and you're going to have to know how to survive it. You're going to have to know how to survive it physically because people are going to come at you physically. He taught me how to look after myself. 
how to defend yourself in a street fight because he said, these are the things you're going to have to know. It, 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 you know, there was no point him sitting down with me on his knee and reading me bedtime stories. That wasn't going to help me survive. He had to be, he had to be tough and he set some very strict boundaries on me. And, you know, he rode me hard because he, he knew that I had to be tough. And, and, and yet he was also a man who was um, a very, very deep soul and a man who's denied so many opportunities, an incredibly intelligent man who later in life has, as I said, has, got, has gone on to write the first dictionary of Wiradjuri people, has, a, has uh, completed a doctorate at Charles Sturt University. It's a man who was denied education when he was a boy, but through his work in language has helped save that language, established a, a postgraduate studies program in Wiradjuri language at Charles Sturt University. And, um, you know, he's... He's, he's lived 10 lives in one, just a remarkable human being who at the end of all of that has nothing but love and forgiveness for a country that frankly at times has not deserved his love and forgiveness. And your mother's not Wiradjuri, is she? She's, is she Gummeroy? Is that how Camilla you say it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Gummeroy. Yeah. Gummeroy. From uh, northwestern New South Wales. Okay. Well, they, they, they say, you can say it different ways. You can say Camilleroy, Gamilleroy, or Gummeroy, and they're all pretty much the same. I just say Gummeroy. That's what I brought up saying. Yeah, Mum, and interestingly, Mum as well, her um, her father's Gummeroy man, and her mother is a white woman. Interestingly, you know, I, I, I say white because she was white, but in fact, she was brought up black. Her stepfather was Aboriginal, her brother's Aboriginal, she was brought up in Aboriginal communities. She lived with an Aboriginal man. She had Aboriginal children. I never saw her as anything other than an Aboriginal person, even though she was, you know, biologically a white person, blonde hair, blue eyes. But because of that, I would actually say that my mum and her siblings probably had an even harder time than my dad and his brothers and sisters because my dad, both his parents were Rajuri. They're a black family. They're living that very black experience. My mother is living in between worlds, you know, because her mother was a white woman, I think the police were even more brutal towards them. They had to live on the fringes of town. They couldn't live on the Aboriginal mission, but they couldn't live in the town either. Her father was constantly harassed, locked up, was once chained to a tree by the police after they found him drinking and left in the blazing sun all day. My mother has a deep, deep anger. And she deals with that, I think, in writing. She writes a lot of poetry and a lot of short stories. And whenever I'm with her, she's always telling me what happened to her when she was young. She's never forgotten that. I think part of that comes because she represented so much of what Australia would rather have forgotten, you know, to be white and black. You know, these are the people who were taken away. And, of course, some of her brothers and sisters were taken away to, to homes and experienced the full brutality of that too she comes from a very very hard place in australia so was her mother german and and had more than 10 children was it it was a a really big family yeah she oh she had oh gee i think she had 13 or 14 children all up and three of them died so yeah a, a lot of kids and and my mum my my grandmother and my grandfather were never married you know white and black i don't think it was even possible to be honest she wasn't allowed to have her children in the hospital. They turned her away because they wouldn't have the white woman having black children in the hospital. She had to go to a, another town where they didn't know her to have them. 
it, it was it was it was very very hard for her, and to be honest, it probably broke her. She had a, a breakdown later on in her in her life, and you know, um, no doubt, I think there was a period of her life. My mum said where you know, things were very hard for her because I think she just dealt with so much of that that brutality. But she um, she was a great lady. She's a very funny lady, and you know, I spent a lot of time with her growing up, and. She was uh, she was crazy, you know, in a lot of ways. She was in, in 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 a good way, you know. She was she was nuts. She was just out eccentric and outrageous and funny. And she would sing and she she you know she was just she just thumbed her nose at every possible convention. She looked like a nineteen thirties Hollywood movie star. She was stunningly beautiful when she was young, and and then when she was older, she still sort of had that glamour about her and. Uh, and she did. She was just, she, she was just totally unconventional. I'll, I'll live with a black man. I'll have those kids. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll look like a Hollywood star. I'll, I'll sing. I'll, you know, she just any convention. She was just smashing it down. You know, she would never live by someone else's measurement. You know, she'd live by her own. Once you take us through a catalogue of family tragedies and again it's it's tough listening and and really heartfelt and tragic stuff um you then anticipate what the opposition's going to say do you remember that part oh yeah yeah and look i i did have that very much in mind i I knew what their lines were going to be you know i hear it all my life um what are you complaining about you've done well you know what you know look at the job you've got and um you know, look at you, you've got white blood as well. You know, why are you always talking about being Aboriginal? I know all those lines and I and I just wanted to slap that down. First of all, if I've done well, it was not because anything Australia did for me. It was because what my parents endured, my grandparents endured. It was in spite of Australia, not because of it. If I had white blood in me, yes, I did. Why? Because of my grandmother. And look at the way white Australia treated her. They treated her like dirt. So don't tell me about acknowledging white blood, you know. I just wanted to to take full on, and they, they hadn't even spoken at this point, but I knew what their arguments were going to be because I've heard them my life. And, and you know, it's about people wanting to define me. It's about people wanting to put my people down. It's about wanting to, you know, to, to, to wash away our past, to deny our history. And I wanted to meet that full on. I mean, I always had in my mind that I wanted to deal with that and to anticipate their arguments and demolish them before they'd even begun. Well, the first speaker for the negative was Rita Panahi. She's a conservative columnist in the Herald Sun here in Victoria. And in some ways, she was the number one cheerleader for the Boers. She was saying it's just uh, yeah. it's just good old-fashioned fun at the footy sort of thing. She said that over and over in lots of different ways. And you, you knew she was coming was, was this part kind of aimed at her? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, it was. It was um, anticipating what she was going to say. And to be honest with you, um, there's a little bit of competition in this too. I, there was no way in the world I was going to lose a debate to her. <laughs> Absolutely no way. My, my people were not going to be defeated by that, let me tell you. You know, that was never going to happen. But, but, but I, will, I will say this about, about Rita. She had some very nice things to say that night and... And I think she actually begins her speech, and she said um, she says that she was she was really honoured to have been there to have heard my opening, my, my opening speech in the debate. 
and and you know we chatted afterwards and i you know rita may have a you know she has a political you know she she, she has a political stance that she wants to take and she has her own stick you know like everybody does and um but but there is a person there there is a, a human being there and you know and i and, and you know I, I didn't want to lose to her <laughs> but i um but i you know anybody who's prepared to come and stand on a stage and and put their ideas out there and own those ideas and have a debate needs to be respected you know and i and i do respect that and i do respect her for that and i do know that on that night you know after hearing what I had to say about my family and my family's experiences, that she was touched by that, genuinely touched by that and, and said so. And, um, and so it was, it was nice to hear that. But, but I also didn't want to lose the, the debate to Rita. <laughs> Will you take us up, Stan, I guess from a, a pretty low point in terms of contemplating where Australia is and where we've been, um, you give us some hope to hold on to. And, and it's a phrase that you said maybe got lost in the reporting of the speech, that the the final turn in the speech is, we're better than this. Um, can you talk about this last section of the speech? Because I, because I do believe in this country in spite of everything, you know. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in the worst places in the world, and Australia is not that. And, you know, I, I acknowledge that what we've built in Australia is remarkable. It is remarkable. What we have in Australia does not exist in too many places. To be to be free, to be democratic, to be tolerant, to to build a country where we don't kill each other for our ideas, um, where where Shia and Sunni are not slaughtering each other, where Catholic and Protestant are not at war, where Hindu and Muslim can live next to each other. I think that's a remarkable thing. I think the really sad thing is that the Australia we have built has not still been big enough to acknowledge its own failings and to make a place for the First Nations people in this country as well. We'd all be richer for that. We would be an even more remarkable country for that. You know, when it comes to singing the praises of Australia, I'm right there with Rita, you know. Um, there is nothing she would say about Australia that I wouldn't, or I wouldn't happily say as well. It is remarkable, but it fails us. If it's going to be a great country, it needs to be held to the full test of that greatness. And it fails. In spite of everything it's achieved, it fails fundamentally the First Nations people of this country. And, and, and that's why I wanted to leave with that sense of a job still not done, a nation still incomplete. And I wanted to return to that idea of the anthem, I want to stand there and sing that anthem too. I want those words to matter to me too. Maybe we find a new anthem. Maybe we find a, you know, a, a, a new flag. Maybe we, we find a new constitution. But we do it together. And that, and that my wife and my children and my children's friends, white, black, everything else, that we can find a better country together because I believe in the country. I don't stand there to denounce the country and, so, and, and say that, it, you know, it's a country that is, is irredeemably shamed by its past. I believe it's a nation in search of itself and I wanted to touch on that. It's funny you use the phrase, if Australia is to be a great country, because I know how 
much you read and study orators and philosophies and, and you'd know that the I Have a Dream speech has if America is to be a great country. And I heard the echo just then and, 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 and when I heard again the line that you use towards the end of the speech, every time we are lured into the light, we are mugged by the darkness of this country's history. For me, that was just such a fully formed line. I wonder... You know, is that something that really just materialised for you on the stage? Yeah, it did. It did. But it's, um, but it's an idea that I live with. I mean, every single time. Every single time. You know, Cathy Freeman runs the Olympics and she wins a gold medal. And, and Aboriginal children are still locked up in the numbers that they are. People still die in police custody. And the, the people to whom Cathy belongs are still the most impoverished and imprisoned people in the country every time. And when you and when Adam Good stood up and, and, and challenged this country to be better, people turned on him every time. Every time the 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 the, the ugliness of our history comes back to haunt us. And we are mugged by that history. Every time. And um and, and so the, uh, the idea was always there. So it is a very fully formed idea because I've lived with it. And you're right, you know, I spend a lot of time reading philosophy, trying to understand the world and reading history. And, you know, I've, I, I, I've always got my head in a book and I'm always thinking. I write a lot and, and uh, you know, these, these ideas are there and, and they are very thought out there they are very fully formed ideas but part of giving a speech or being involved in a debate is to find the language to encapsulate those ideas i needed something that captured those ideas and that idea of being mugged by the the darkness of our history encapsulated what it is like to live with the burden of that history and you take us out as i mentioned before on a positive note the hope you see in present and future generations, things like the march across the bridge and and the standing together for Kevin Rudd's apology, what you see in your children and, and their friends and just the general feeling of positivity um, and, and again, a return to the anthem line. Um, was that just a neat way to tie it up? The anthem had been there at the front, so bring it in again at the end? Yeah, um, and, you know, I, I, it, a nation is something that we imagine, right? Nations are not real. The nation, nations are imagined communities. And how we celebrate those things, how we, give, how we give form to that imagining is through things like our anthems. It's through our sporting teams. It's through our literature. It's through our songs. It's... It's through our art. It's, it's what we create to give form to this imagined idea of who we are. And part of that is to test that idea, challenge it, bang it out of shape a bit. And I wanted to finish on that idea of the anthem, that yes, I mean, this anthem that doesn't speak to us at all, that one day I would want to stand there and to sing that song as loudly and proudly as anyone else because I want to believe that this country has a place for me. If I didn't, I wouldn't be here. And sometimes it's been better not to be here. Um, but but it's if we're going to believe in something, we have to believe in the hope of the, of the country. We have to. 
It's interesting to think of the activists balancing act that I sometimes think people like yourself have to tread, you know, because I, I, I watched one of your latest speeches where, where you spoke about criticism you received, a nostalgia for injustice, <clears throat> a kind of a sense that you were wallowing in this negative history. But my understanding is you also cop it from Indigenous activists for the fact that you allow that big beam of hope to radiate down at the end of a speech like that. Um, is, is it true that you're always going to offend one side or the other on this? Well, you know, you have to be truthful, you know, you be honest to yourself and, and uh, part of, of wanting to engage with ideas, part of, you know, wanting to to lead discussion, if you like, is to is to make yourself vulnerable, is to, to risk those things, is to challenge people, make people feel uncomfortable. But in doing that, I'm challenging myself all the time. I mean, no one makes me more uncomfortable than I make myself. So, you know, yeah, look, it, it can be a lonely place, but, but that's, that's who I am. You know, I don't like certainty and I really don't like identity. I don't like the certainty of identity. I don't like, I think it's the enemy of freedom. Um, I don't want to be reduced to one thing. I don't want to be a prisoner of my history. I don't want to make an enemy of my fellow Australians. I'm, I believe in freedom and I believe justice, freedom is the truest form of justice. You know, that's what Nelson Mandela taught us. He didn't revel in misery. He didn't revel in revenge. He sought freedom for everybody. That's what the true test of justice is. Is it freedom for everybody? And that's what I believe in. And, you know, if that challenges other people, then well and good, because I'm challenged by it too. You know, I'm, I'm tested by that all the time. It would be so much easier for me to give in to hopelessness and revenge and, and vengeance and resentment. I feel those things. I have a deep, deep anger about our history. You know, I struggle with those things all the time, but I know ultimately that I believe in freedom and that freedom is the truest form of justice. And, and you know, I need to challenge people on those ideas. But it, but it means that people are going to criticise you because they, they're not ready to embrace those things or those things challenge them and they're not ready to give up the certainty of their own identities, whether it's a white identity or a black identity. They're not ready to relinquish the certainty of those identities. Um, I don't like certainty and I really don't like identity. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of political solutions, are there steps that you'd like to see taken soon? You know, it's all, it's, it's part of a journey, right? It's the journey that we're on. We, our history is our history. We live with that. We live with the reality of that. We live with the pain of that. We live with the, the triumph of that. But it's all us. That's the journey we're on. You know, people like to invest a lot of emotion and, and, and invest a lot of, a lot of ideas of, of political justice around things like treaties or constitutional recognition. And in and of themselves, those things are, are important. But what's more important is who we are as a nation. You can sign a treaty, but is that treaty going to be meaningful? Is that going to speak to us as a nation? Is that going to be the truest uh, statement of our aspirations and our ideals? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a storyteller. I believe in the, in the power of stories and um, the ability for a nation to find a story for itself. It doesn't have to be one story. 
I don't believe in this national narrative, national identity stuff. I don't believe in it at all. I believe we bring all of ourselves to this and creating space for all of us to bring our stories. And through those shared stories, we find something in common with each other. We don't have to be the same, but we have to understand that we share a place and this place is who we are. It's place before people, in a sense, in, in many ways. So, so, you know, of course, we live in a political world and, and, uh, and, and, and you know, treaties and constitutional recognition give political architecture and structure to how we negotiate the politics of our lives. But politics is not who we are. It doesn't speak to our soul. Stories speak to our soul. I'm much more interested in story and poetry politics. Do you have a sense of what you'd like Australia to be for your kids when they're in their mid-50s? My, my children? Yeah. Um, well, you know, freedom. That's what I want for them. I want them to be able to walk through the world free to be who they want to be, with no one defining that for them. Yes, they're Indigenous. Yes, they're Australian. There are many things. But they are free human beings. And freedom, as I've said, is the, for me, is the highest form of justice. Um, we live in a world right now where the questions of freedom uh, are under threat. You know, the, the, the idea of democracy, the idea of liberty is under threat. We've got a rising authoritarianism, a rising political populism. Um, China's increasing power is a real challenge to... The world, because China does not come from a, a, a you know, a, 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 the politics of China is not about freedom; it's about control. You know, I lived there for ten years, and I admire many things about it. But the Chinese Communist Party is about control. Um, I want for my children the justice of freedom. That's what I want. They can choose what they wish to be. They can choose the things that matter to them. But at the moment, we live in a world where Aboriginal people don't have that freedom. You know, in Australia today, Aboriginal lives are still so heavily defined by our history, um, by our politics, by disadvantage, by imprisonment. Um, that's not freedom. I want freedom for my children. Stan, in terms of the debate itself, did, did you end up winning it? Oh, yeah, resoundingly. <laughs> yep. I think it was almost unanimous. I mean, it was like, you know, 80 Ninety percent, I think. Yeah, yeah. Look, it was no, it was overwhelming. And, and look, it was probably, you know, I might have been speaking to a an audience of the converted already. But yeah, yeah, we won, we won the debate. But the speech itself and the the, the life that the speech took on, I think, was something that I could never have anticipated. I mean, I I gave an eight minute speech as part of a debate. I walked out of there that night thinking, oh well, I said a few things I wanted to say. We won the debate. Yep. Well, well, I don't never gave it a second thought. Not a second thought. But there is no doubt in many respects that night had a profound effect on my life. It changed so much of my life. It created other opportunities, but it also created its own burden. And, uh, and uh, I live with that still and the expectation and the responsibilities and um, what people project onto you or invest in you because of, of an eight-minute speech. You know, uh, it was life-altering. There's no, no doubt about it. And at the time, I had no idea of what, what it would lead to or how it would impact me. It was just a speech I'd given and walked off the stage. That was the end of it. It was actually months, wasn't it? I, I remember hearing it, I think, in January or February when it went 
viral yeah. in 2016, yeah. but you'd actually delivered it three months earlier. It's, it's strange, that delay. Yeah. Well, it was broadcast then. It was, uh, it was recorded that night, but it wasn't broadcast live. It was part of a recording, and then the BBC um, had it programmed to run at a certain time, and then the, after they'd run it, the ABC would run it. So it, there was a delayed reaction. I was actually in the United States, and I arrived back in Australia. I turned my phone on, had all these texts, talking about a speech I'd given. And my mom, my wife called me, and she said, you know, you've gone viral. And I said, what? You've, you know, you've given this speech. I said, what speech? I've been in America. And she's like, no, no, that, that speech you gave, you know, in the debate, and I went. It was months ago. You know, I, I it was it was surreal that this thing that I'd done months earlier became something else. Right. And um, but it did, and 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 it changed changed a lot. You know, the way people would see me, uh, even people I'd known for a long time, started to you know, as a result of that looked at me differently. It was weird. I felt like I was the same person, but it had a it had a a, a, a really big impact um, on how other people perceived me. I think. And would it never have been that sort of a speech if it wasn't a debate? Did it need to be in the debate yeah. form to have that force? Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, I've given a lot of speeches and lectures and they're very long. If they go for an hour, then there's a different structure. There's, a, there's more depth. Um, there's more nuance. There's, there is light and shade. And, uh, you know, if you're giving, if you want to hold an audience attention for, for an hour, it, it needs to be a very different structure. And, and I like giving those sort of speeches. In fact, I probably like giving them more than, than that one in a sense because they are more nuanced and they are more complex and, and I like nuance and complexity. But that was, uh, a, you know, that was eight minutes. I had to go up there. I had to deliver. Uh, I had to defend my people. I had to, I had to deliver something that encapsulated our history, our politics and our future, you know, our past and where we may be in the future. So I, um, there, there was a lot in it, but I think it was the nature of it. And I, I also think I was I fairly blasé about it, to be honest with you. I mean, I, um, you know, I walked up and I gave an eight-minute speech as part of a debate. You know, a debate is a combative space. You want to, It's competitive. You want to win you want to be forceful you want to get your arguments across and and uh that all of that really informed the speech itself but to be taken out of the context of the debate i would never have given that speech in any other forum it was entirely formed by by the nature of that debate and it really was a sensation i mean you were said say you're in the states when when it hit the screens it was played on cnn and, and these sorts of places wasn't it yeah, well, you know, I worked at CNN for a long time, so a lot of my colleagues there got in touch, and then I was interviewed on CNN about it, and um, Al Jazeera interviewed me about it, and the BBC interviewed me about it. You look at it, I, th- I think for the rest of the world as well, for many of them, it was their introduction to Indigenous issues, you know. They'd never thought about it before. It was something that was new to them. Aboriginal people barely rated mention globally. So for them, you know, it was something new. And I think also because I'd had an international profile, you know, been an international correspondent, on it, you know, for a big network, you know, I was broadcasting to millions of homes around the world. People at the BBC and Al Jazeera, they, they know who I am. They'd seen my work. I'd worked alongside many of these people. So they probably also had, had an impact. You know, I, I already had, had that profile outside of Australia. Did your mum and dad say anything about it to you afterwards? Not really, you know. I don't. I don't recall ever having a conversation with mum and dad. I mean, it's not really what we talk about. 
and, and no one in my family really. I think, I mean, they, you know, they've 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 lived this. They know this. There's nothing exceptional in what I said. That that's their lives. But also, you know, I've always been this person for them. You know, I've always been this person who does TV reports and writes books and has a profile and. You know, even when I was a kid, you know, I was always a bit different. I, I, you know, I was always had my head in a book and uh, I've always been a bit odd to them in some respects, you know. So they would have just thought, oh, well, you know, it's the latest odd thing about this <laughs> weird kid that we've got. So they've, they, they've never really talked about it. But, they, you know, I think they feel represented, you know, and that's the important thing to me, that my family's names are spoken on on that stage, that they feel represented, that they feel that their stories are told. And I think that matters to them a lot. Well, Stan Grant, I like to think that we've got a good representation of Aboriginal speakers on Speakola, starting, I think, with Jack Patton at the 1938 Day of Mourning, an incredible speech. Then we've also got Chris Sarah, Louita O'Donoghue, and I think yours really tops the lot the greatest example of Aboriginal speech making in Australia and for mine one of the speeches of the 21st century if not the speech of the 21st century in Australia so what a pleasure to have you on the podcast thanks for coming on oh my pleasure Tony what what a, a great honor thank you so much Pause, ready? Counting in. Three, two, one. Hi, I'm Tony. Hi, I'm Jack. Jack's my nine-year-old son, and he has fallen in love with which type of avocados, Jack? Green chicken and purple chicken avocados. And? And say hello to my little sister over there. Alice. Alice, what do you think of green skin and purple skin avocados? Good. You don't sound very excited, but she has been in lockdown for a long time. What's the favourite way to have an avocado, Alice? On toast. What's your favourite way to have an avocado, Jack? Just, you know, normal avocados. Straight out of the skin. Well, they come out perfect every time with green skin and purple skin avocados. Find out more, including about their ripeness button. That's where you press the top of the avocado. Find out more, Jack, where? At greenskin and purpleskinavocado.com.au and on our website and also on Facebook. That's right. And it's actually at lovemyavocados.com.au. I keep getting a dot com wrong. <laughs> Thank you to my avocado appreciators, Jack and Alice Wilson. Jack has cerebral palsy, and you can hear its effects on some of the contact syllables there. But when you ask him what he wants to be, he says he wants to be a sports commentator, like his hero, Anthony Hudson. But thank you, Jack. If you want to support my writing and my family, uh, I've dedicated a book to Jack. It's called The Cow Tripped Over the Moon. And you can hear me reading it to Jack on YouTube. Search Tony Wilson and Cow Tripped Over the Moon. And you can also buy that book and any of my books at tonywilson.com.au. If you send me an email to tony at tonywilson.com.au, 
I'll send you a copy. We can swap accounts and address details. Speech of the week, well, it is, of course, Stan Grant's Australian Dream speech, which was delivered at the Ethics Centre event, the Intelligence Squared debate, on the 27th of October 2015. Stan was the first speaker for the affirmative, and the debate proposition was that racism is destroying the Australian Dream. We've heard so much about how it came to be. Now it's time to sit back and marvel at the glory of what it was and what it is. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming along this evening, and I would also like to extend my respects to my Gadigal brothers and sisters from my people, the Wiradjuri people. In the winter of 2015, Australia turned to face itself. It looked into its soul, and it had to ask this question. Who are we? What sort of country do we want to be? And this happened in a place that is most holy, most sacred to Australians. It happened in the sporting field. It happened on the football field. Suddenly, the front page was on the back page. It was in the grandstands. Thousands of voices rose to hound an indigenous man, a man who was told he was an Australian, a man who was told he was an Australian of the year. And they hounded that man into submission. I can't speak for what lay in the hearts of the people who booed Adam Goods, but I can tell you what we heard when we heard those boos. We heard a sound that was very familiar to us. We heard a howl. We heard a howl of humiliation that echoes across two centuries of dispossession, injustice, suffering and survival. We heard the howl of the Australian dream, and it said to us again, you're not welcome. The Australian dream. We sing of it, and we recite it in verse. Australians all let us rejoice, for we are young and free. My people die young in this country. We die 10 years younger than average Australians, and we are far from free. We are fewer than 3% of the Australian population, And yet we are 25%, a quarter of those Australians, locked up in our prisons. And if you are a juvenile, it is worse. It is 50%. An Indigenous child is more likely to be locked up in prison than they are to finish high school. I love a sunburned country, a land of sweeping plains of rugged mountain ranges. Reminds me that my people were killed on those plains. We were shot on those plains. Disease ravaged us on those plains. I come from those plains. I come from a people west of the Blue Mountains, the Wiradjuri people, where in the 1820s, the soldiers and settlers waged a war of extermination against my people. Yes, a war of extermination. That was the language used at the time. Go to the Sydney Gazette and look it up and read about it. Martial law was declared and my people could be shot on sight. Those rugged mountain ranges, my people, Women and children were herded over those ranges to their deaths. The Australian dream. The Australian dream is rooted in racism. It is the very foundation of the dream. It is there at the birth of the nation. It is there in terra nullius, an empty land, a land for the taking. 60,000 years of occupation a people who made the first seafaring journey in the history of mankind, a people of law, 
a people of lore, L-O-R-E, a people of music and art and dance and politics, none of it mattered because our rights were extinguished because we were not here according to British law. And when British people looked at us, they saw something subhuman and if we were human at all, we occupied the lowest rung on civilization's ladder. We were fly-blown Stone Age savages and that was the language that was used. Charles Dickens, the great writer of the age, when referring to the noble savage of which we were counted among, said it would be better that they be wiped off the face of the earth. Captain Arthur Philip, a man of enlightenment, a man who was instructed to make peace with the so-called natives in a matter of years, was sending out raiding parties with the instruction, bring back the severed heads of the black troublemakers. They were smoothing the dying pillow. My people were rounded up and put on missions from where, if you escaped, you were hunted down, you were roped and tied and dragged back, and it happened here, it happened on the mission that my grandmother and my great-grandmother are from at Warren Gesder on the Darling Point at the Murrumbidgee River. Read about it, it happened. By 1901, when we became a nation, when we federated the colonies, we were nowhere. We're not in the Constitution, save for race provisions, which allowed for laws to be made that would take our children, that would invade our privacy, that would tell us who we could marry and tell us where we could live, the Australian dream. By 1963, the year of my birth, the dispossession was continuing. Police came at gunpoint, under cover of darkness, to Mapoon, an Aboriginal community in Queensland, and they ordered people from their homes, and they burned those homes to the ground, and they gave the land to a bauxite mining company, and today those people remember that as the night of the burning. In 1963, when I was born, I was counted among the flora and fauna, not among the citizens of this country. Now, you will hear things tonight, you will hear people say, but you've done well. Yes, I have. And I'm proud of it. And why have I done well? I've done well because of who has come before me. My father, who lost the tips of three fingers working in sawmills to put food on our table because he was denied an education. My grandfather, who served to fight wars for this country when he was not yet a citizen and came back to a segregated land where he couldn't even share a drink with his digger mates in the pub because he was black. My great-grandfather, who was jailed for speaking his language to his grandson, my father, jailed for it. My grandfather on my mother's side, who married a white woman who reached out to Australia, lived on the fringes of town until the police came, put a gun to his head, bulldozed his tin humpy and ran over the graves of the three children he buried there. That's the Australian dream. I have succeeded in spite of the Australian dream, not because of it, and I have succeeded because of those people. You might hear tonight, but you have white blood in you. And if the white blood in me was here tonight, my grandmother, she would tell you of how she was turned away from a hospital, giving birth to her first child because she was giving birth to the child of a black person. The Australian dream. We're better than this. I have seen the worst of the world as a reporter. I've I spent a decade in war zones from Iraq to Afghanistan and Pakistan. We are an extraordinary country. We are, in so many respects, the envy of the world. If I was sitting here where my friends are tonight, I would be arguing passionately for this country. But I stand here with my ancestors, and the view looks very different from where I stand. The Australian dream. We have our heroes. Albert Namatjira wrote that, painted the soul of this nation 
Vincent Lingiari put his hand out for Gough Whitlam to pour the sand of his country through his fingers and say, this is my country. Kathy Freeman lit the torch to the Olympic Games, but every time we are lured into the light, we are mugged by the darkness of this country's history. Of course racism is killing the Australian dream. It is self-evident that it's killing the Australian dream. But we are better than that. The people who stood up and supported Adam Goods and said no more, they are better than that. The people who marched across the bridge for reconciliation, they are better than that. The people who supported Kevin Rudd when he said sorry to the stolen generations, they are better than that. My children and their non-Indigenous friends are better than that. My wife who is non-Indigenous is better than that. And one day I want to stand here and be able to say as proudly and sing as loudly as anyone else in this room, Australians all, let us rejoice. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for making it to the end of another episode. Thank you, Stan Grant, for being such a wonderful participant. Stan's books include Tell It to the World, an Indigenous memoir that was published in the US in 2019. And he's also published On Identity, which was written in both English and Wiradjuri, also released last year. I want to thank the Ethics Centre in Sydney. They have such a great series of debates, including the Intelligence Squared series. I want to thank Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados and also Jack and Alice for helping me with that read. Thank you to David Bridey for composing and producing our theme music. The first guest in this series, Damien Callanan, actually has me as a guest on his podcast this week, the Bodgy Creek Community Podcast. And that is a lot of fun, me giving speech advice to the great football coach, Troy Carrington of the Bodgy Creek Roosters. So check that out. You can find all my books, Humpty Dumpty Sat on the Slide, 1989 The Great Grand Final at tonywilson.com.au. And you can do that podcasty thing of rating us and reviewing us on iTunes. I know it's annoying to have to ask, but it does boost us up the rankings and gives this podcast a better chance at a longer life. Well, that's it from me. Speechly salutations to you and see you next time.